I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. The Bay Area's COVID-19 cases are tapering off, and scientists are hopeful we'll see a relatively calm summer. But they're warning that cases could pick up again in the fall, right when the flu season takes off, creating a double whammy for hospitals. I'm talking to Aaron Alday, the Chronicle's health reporter, about how doctors and scientists are preparing and what regular people can do to help. Aaron Alday, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Heather Knight. <laughs> we have been planning for years to write a column or record a podcast together with the title of All Day and Night, so I'm glad we're finally doing it. It's about time, seriously. <laughs> I don't think we really intended this to be the topic, but... Definitely not what oh, we well. intended. <laughs> yes. Everybody's favorite topic, COVID-19 and the flu. So you have a big story coming out on sfchronicle.com about um, how Bay Area life is starting to open again very slowly, but scientists are warning of a possible resurgence of COVID-19 in the fall timed with the usual flu season. Um, What are researchers telling you about the dangers of both viruses circulating at the same time? Well, it would be really bad if we had kind of a resurgence of COVID-19 in the fall at the same time that the flu season picks up. Um, The way we're designed right now, you know, our healthcare systems are built around the flu season. So they're very good at handling whatever the flu season throws at them. But they've kind of like adapted over, you know, the decades to just be so good at meeting that demand that they essentially reach like capacity, like they... They are like right at their limit um, every flu season and and by planning, you know, they, they do that on purpose. So anything kind of above and beyond that is is problematic. Um, and that is certainly what they're thinking about and preparing for right now, that that if they were to get sort of the surge that we haven't seen yet, if that arrived in the fall, that that would very quickly overwhelm our hospital systems and result in potentially a lot more severe illness, not just from COVID-19, but from flu, that you you would have the same issue with not having enough beds, not having enough ventilators, you know, all the problems that we've been talking about. Right. I loved one quote you have from a hospital administrator, I think from Sutter, um, calling treating the flu and COVID-19 at the same time as playing three-dimensional chess. Why are they you know, bracing so much for this and what makes it so hard? So I think, yeah, the, the, the chess comment was really, to me, um, descriptive because you know, it's, it is just preparing for the flu every year is like a kind of a strategy game, right? Like you're just kind of planning for all these moving pieces. The flu is known as being unpredictable. So it changes every single year. You don't know what strains are going to be circulating. You don't know how severe it's going to be. You don't know what age groups are going to be affected, how, how good the vaccine will be. Um, So there's just sort of a lot of uncertainty coming into the flu season that they're already trying to strategize around every year. So that's, you know, already this complicated chess game. And now you're throwing this whole other potential factor into there, this other variable, which is COVID, which we know even less about that than we do about the flu. So, you know, we have no idea what is going to be happening with COVID-19 in the fall. We don't know, you know, if it will resurface at all. We don't know um, when it might come back, how bad it might be. Um, You know, we could have treatments by then that might actually make it less of a problem, or we could be exactly where we are right now. So there's just, it just complicates what's already a really kind of complicated situation for healthcare systems. Yes, you're just bringing so many good stories to us these days. Happy news. (laughs) Yeah, right? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I thought an interesting part of your article was looking at the way they usually predict uh, what a flu season will be like and why some of that strategy doesn't work, particularly looking at the southern 
hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So we have a lot of ways of anticipating what our flu season might look might look um, in the the coming year. And one of the big ones is they look to the southern hemisphere. So Australia, New Zealand in particular, which have healthcare systems, you know, they're kind of the same similar to us in terms of wealth and healthcare systems. So they're sort of a good marker of what we might see in our flu system. So we keep an eye on them. If they have a very severe flu season, that's a good chance that we'll have a severe flu season. What strains are circulating down there is a pretty good marker of what strains will be seen here. So they've been thinking, well, we'll look at Australia and New Zealand and see how, because they're just entering their flu season now. They're on the Southern Hemisphere, so they're opposite of us. Um, And they were kind of hoping to get an idea of what might happen when you have COVID-19 and influenza circulating at the same time, and that that would give us in the United States a good sense of what that looks like. But um, Australia and New Zealand have been doing a pretty good job of keeping their outbreaks really under control. So they're not actually that great of a marker. <laughs> I'm like here. I know, exactly. Right. So like we've had it kind of raging, um, but they've got theirs under control. So we're actually not able to look at them all that closely to see what you know, what we might expect. Um, it's, it's so that, that, that sort of remains a mystery for us. And then the other thing we look at is, you know, a previous flu season. Um, we can look at, you know, COVID-19 was already circulating. We now know in the Bay area at the same time as influenza this last year or this, this year, this last January, February, and March. Um, but we didn't really know it at the time for much of the flu season. And even when we did know it, we couldn't test for COVID-19 very well. So all of the data that we collect that tells us sort of how much respiratory illness is out in the community, and we have really good surveillance tools for for keeping tabs on that, but it's kind of, I don't want to say useless, but it's not super useful because the data is just so messy. It's all kind of muddied between coronavirus and influenza. And so we can't really do a good job of looking back at that to anticipate what might happen in the future. Right. And can somebody get um, the flu and COVID-19 at the same time? So that's a really good question um, that we don't quite, I mean, they certainly can. The answer is that yes, it's it certainly is possible. And there have been specific um, instances of people who have been infected with both. Um, Stanford did a small study that looked at co-infections and found, I, I want to say it was a little bit under a third. It might've been more like 25% of patients who with, with the coronavirus had another respiratory virus infection at the same time. Not very many were flu, like maybe only a couple, um, but their study was small. Um, and, you know, we'll be definitely paying attention to that um, as time goes forward. The other question is, so we know people can be co-infected. We don't know how likely that is to happen. And we don't know if that causes more severe illness. I mean, presumably it does, but you know, these are all questions that, that we still need to figure out. But one one complicating issue with that is last last flu season, they were using one of the ways they were identifying COVID-19 patients to preserve testing supplies was they would test people for flu first. And if you were positive for the flu, then they would be like, well, that's obviously what's making you sick. We're done with you. We don't need to test you any further. Hmm. But now we know that that's not really appropriate. We can't really rule out COVID-19 infections by first diagnosing somebody with the flu or something else. So that could have led to a lower um, rate of accuracy in COVID-19 tests, right? Yep. Or <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, probably exactly. more people had it, which we suspected. Anyway. Well, yeah, we've, we've always That's known that. But yeah, reason. even yeah, exactly. Just another reason for that. Yeah. Um, and then you talked about how scientists are trying to figure out one test that could be administered to um, show whether the person has the flu and COVID-19 rather than relying on two separate tests. 
Yeah. Is that very feasible? And how would that work? You know, I think that certainly seems feasible. There's already been a lot of progress and people working on coming up with a better diagnostic test. Um, I think uh, one of our reporters, Catherine Ho, wrote about the potential for a saliva test, which would make it easier. Because, um, you know, right now it's that nasal swab, which I haven't undergone it, but I'm I'm told is pretty uncomfortable. Um, and it's not, it's not ideal. We would ideally have just a smoother, easier, quicker test that we could give to people. And what would be great would be, as you said, if there was one, like right now, if you get your blood drawn, right, they can then test your blood for a whole bunch of different things. You get one blood test and they'll check you for like a dozen different conditions, right? So it'd be great if you could get like one throat swab or nasal swab or saliva test or something and be able to check for flu and COVID-19 and also. So, you know, there's a bunch of other things that circulate in the winter. So if you could test for all of those at once, that would just be so much faster. Right. And does this mean that people um, need to get their flu shot even more than usual? I always make my kids get them, but I know some people don't believe in them or just forget or what. But will it be even more essential to get yes, flu shots? That is what that is kind of like the one tool that everybody kept kind of pushing on me when I was I was interviewing them. And it makes sense. The idea is we don't have very good flu vaccine uptake in this country. It's pretty high for older people and actually for little kids, but pretty bad for um, like teenagers and, and adults and young adults and middle aged adults. Um, so overall, it's only about like half of the population gets flu shots. Um, so yeah, there's going to be a huge effort to get as many people as possible. You know, as one, one of the doctors I talked to told me, it's like, if we can get influenza off the table as much as possible, then that, that is a huge hurdle overcome in terms of preparing for this potential surge of both of them at the same time. And not only get more people to get flu shots, but to have them get them very early in the season so that we can just kind of get on top of this thing really early because the the flu season doesn't usually start in the bay area until like january um and so a lot of people tend to put it off a little bit like till november or december or even later and now they're saying look let's let's not mess around with this everybody get your flu shots like as soon as they're out there september october um and then that's one thing that we can largely kind of do away with and not worry about and that's the idea is to keep as many beds free yes in the hospitals. Beds um, free, so but also just, you know, I mean, not just beds, but like keep emergency rooms, doctor's offices, like all of the stuff. And even the, the you know, personal protective equipment that we're talking about, like that would preserve, you know, a lot of those resources if we can just keep people away from doctor's offices. I'll be right back with Aaron Alday. I'm Heather Knight, and I'm back with Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday. And your story also touched on the H1N1 virus and how the timeline for that worked and how that might be instructive for what we should anticipate um, this year with COVID-19. And so that one started in the spring, went down in the summer and started back up again in the fall, timed with when kids went back to school. So are scientists predicting a similar kind of timeline with COVID-19? And what do you think that tells us about when and how to reopen schools? So I think that, you know, it's really been hard to to forecast. We've been kind of bad at, at predicting this this coronavirus just um, for a lot of reasons, but we've been really bad at it. But, you know, they're they're looking at a lot of different models. And certainly, you know, the H1N1 is a really obvious one for us to look at. Um, and, you know, cr- coronaviruses and influenza viruses are different in a lot of ways, but there are enough similarities that it certainly is worthwhile to kind of think that this is, you know, to 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 understand that this is one possibility that we're looking at. Um and with H1N1 it was so clear kind of 
you just we have data that we're going to run with my story and it's just really clear like how that played out you can see this like bump late in the flu season when h1n1 arrived and then it lowered and was still sort of circulating a little bit over the summer and then it just exploded when kids went back to school in the fall it just really took off and in that case kids were known to be especially vulnerable to it um so they were a huge reservoir of sickness and so you know, it it kind of made sense that that was what happened. I think one of the questions with coronavirus is we are still really unclear on what role kids play in this pandemic. Um, we don't know how many of them are asymptomatic, how sick they get, um, if maybe some of them don't get sick at all. So it's really kind of hard for us to tell what's going to happen with the school situation when or if, you know, they reopen. But certainly we have to assume that they're going to be infected as as well as anybody that they're going to be this reservoir and i think that just plays into what we're talking about which is the importance of working right now to put into place you know protocols for keeping kids socially distant as much as you can once Mm -hmm. you know if schools were reopened that's gonna be hard (laughs) it's gonna be really hard but i mean they're talking about that you know clearing out half the desks and having these like half days and every other days and i mean you know that your parents so like all of these conversations watching it very closely yes exactly but that's that is i think that's another reason why that is going to be huge is that could be a really big factor um, for for possible resurgences of this. And it sounds like people are anticipating a relatively quiet summer um, and really want to use that to our advantage to prepare for the fall. So are you hearing any specifics on um, how the summer can be used to our benefit? Yeah, I think that there there is a lot of hope that the summer will be pretty quiet, mostly because you know, we've got this thing pretty well under control in the Bay Area um, because of all the sheltering in place. And at least, you know, we're going to start seeing this easing of restrictions throughout the summer, but they're going to be so, I mean, our health officers here have been so cautious, so conservative, and I'm sure that they're not going to stop that anytime soon. So even as they lift these restrictions, they're going to be keeping such a close eye on the case counts that, you know, if anything starts to kind of spiral up, they'll be clamping down on that right away. So, it should be a I, I think it should be a pretty tame summer and that will be then the appropriate time. I mean, I didn't put this in the story, but one of the things that folks talk to me about is, you know, we put off when we when we kind of closed up the hospitals to elective surgeries and other procedures, you know, people put off a lot of their general kind of health um stuff, you know, dentist visits, um, regular kind of doctor visits, um, screening, mammograms, things like that. So you're kind of kind of want to get people to do all of that stuff over the summer while we have the capacity and while there isn't this sort of, you know, a lot of virus in circulating and circulation. So kind of get people as healthy as we can, get our hospitals really lined up, get get all of that personal protective equipment lined up, get the beds kind of in place, um, do all the scheduling, just kind of do everything we can to get to kind of brace for the fall to brace for like this next outbreak when and if it comes um, to kind of just take advantage of that lull and I think that there's going to be a lot of that going on and hopefully also some of our healthcare workers will be using this time to nap and get some rest (laughs) I know (laughs) like you (laughs) right (laughs) um Speaking of dentists and orthodontia appointments, I'm curious as a mom, um, it seems like most of those offices are still closed. Have you heard anything about when they'll be reopening? Um, I haven't heard anything specific. I know that that's that certainly falls under this kind of broader healthcare, you know, category of things that have been delayed or put off. So, you know, definitely people are eager to kind of get that. And I do think those will be prioritized just because, 
you know, for all those reasons we talk about, we don't want to put it off so much that we cause these kind of secondary bad health health effects um, right. that are avoidable. So I, I suspect that stuff will be fairly soon, like within a couple weeks, but I haven't heard anything specific. So I, I okay. probably shouldn't say anything else. <laughs> I like it when you say things. <laughs> I'm just speculating. Uh, off the top of your head. Right. Um. So all the precautions that people in the Bay Area are being so good about now, like wearing face masks and social distancing, um, are are scientists and doctors hopeful that that will mean that they'll help keep the flu cases down themselves because the transmission works in a similar way, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely on their radar. I mean, we as much as we're all kind of bracing for the potential of a really extra bad flu season because we could have both these viruses circulating at the same time, one of the other possible outcomes is that we actually have a really mild flu season because everybody is being really well behaved and wearing face coverings and not going to big social gatherings and just kind of doing like hand washing, doing all the things that we should be doing to keep ourselves healthy and to, healthy and to prevent spread of coronavirus could for sure lead to, you know, potentially like a no big deal, like a lighter, a much lighter than usual flu season. So that's and that's not inconceivable. I mean, that's not even like, you know, unlikely to happen. That is very, very much an outcome that we could see. And that would be fantastic, obviously. Yes. Uh, not very many silver linings right now, but that would be an excellent one. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me on the first episode of All Day and Night. I look Hopefully. forward to another one soon. <laughs> yes, I know. I want to do more All Day and Night. It's about time. We should <laughs> keep it going. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your um, great information, and I will talk to you again soon. Thanks, Heather. Thank you to Aaron Alday for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Fifth Admission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.